morning. Good morning, everyone. Pleasure to meet and worship together. A couple of announcements as we get started. What a, what a great time of worship that was. And uh, looking forward to Saturday. We have a praise and worship night, Saturday night, 7.30 to 8.30. Feel free to bring some dessert or nibblies for after, but just a time of worshiping the Lord and celebrating our Savior with the freedom we have to sing mask-free. That's really cool. It's still a novel novelty that will not hopefully wear off anytime soon, that regardless of how we feel the quality of our voices is, we have a, a Savior who is worthy of all praise and glory. And also announcing that all the regularly scheduled things, such as women's Bible study on Wednesdays, solid and tribe and the word study on Friday nights, those are all back on. So yeah, looking forward to being in God's word together, praying and seeking him, worshiping him, the one who has taken away our sin. And let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to take away our sin, to do what the law could never do, that you have washed us clean, you have made us righteous by your grace, and how privileged and blessed we are, Father, to know you, to be called by your name, to have a Savior, to have our lives redeemed and reconciled to you. And thank you, Lord, for the fellowship we have in Christ. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here today, and pray that you administer to each one according to your will, that we would hear you celebrate you and honor you through obedience and faith. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 10, if you'll turn there. Are there any Gridiron fans here? Is there any besides me? Uh, okay, there's at least one. It's common, and I know it's com it may be common in other sports too. I see it a bit in rugby, but in gridiron, there's something that's often called the halftime adjustment, where you have one team that's got the upper hand, and the other team, uh, it's like chess with large men, or very athletic people, that they, they decide, okay, they've been beating us this way, so we need to counteract that by this. And the pregame scheme goes out the window, and they say, we're going to play to our strengths, we're going to try to defend that guy, and this is how we're going to win. So at some point, the defensive coordinator, the coach, makes a decision, says, we're getting beat, how can we adjust? And then the other team adjusts to their adjustments, and they're all trying to jockey for the win. And the one who makes the best adjustments has the best chance of winning. It's like a chef they have the right to taste the sauce, to change the consistency midway, saying, oh, this is a little too thick, or it's, it's not savory enough, and they'll change some seasoning. A barista will dial in the ground, say, this is over-extracted. This is, this is not what we want to serve to customers. And so the chef, the barista, they have the right to throw out what they had before and saying, we're starting all again. We're, we're having a new approach here. And... Uh, it's just like the coach has the right to abandon that pregame strategy to help the team win. And God, he instituted the covenant of law with his people, but it proved unable to deliver because of the weakness of those who were under it, that the law was not able to make a person righteous. No one could keep his commands. It was weak and unprofitable because it could only condemn. It could not purify a guilty conscience before God. And it's like millions of people 
took their best shot at fulfilling the law and not one of them succeeded. They all failed. By God's grace, he sent Jesus Christ who provided atonement once for all to take away the sins of the world. And the law that condemned man was nailed to the cross with Christ and a new covenant in the shed blood of Jesus was instituted through whom we have redemption and eternal salvation. That's the result that God wanted from the beginning. And the law was a shadow of what was to come. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, it concludes, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Through Jesus, through the gospel, God's designed glorious end, he made a way for man to reach it by his grace, through the shed blood of Christ. We follow on from that in Hebrews 10, starting in verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. The law was a shadow of the good things to come. That lasting forgiveness, the spiritual cleansing that's available only through Christ, through his sacrifice, and the ministry of the temple, all the sacrifices, they were illusions. They pointed to a future thing, a heavenly reality that God determined to do through Christ. Offering those sacrifices, it was never able to purify a soul. And if such sacrifices were sufficient, he's saying, well, why were the, if, if that was enough, if offering that bull or that goat was enough, why did they have to do it the next year and the year after that and the year after that? And it's a reminder of their need, of, of their consciousness of sin, that they realize the law, they are condemned under it. They have sinned since providing that sacrifice and therefore must sacrifice again an atonement for the people. We wash uh, because we know we stink, because we know we've been working in the yard and we feel uncomfortable because someone else says, man, uh, how's your hygiene going? And you realize, okay, I need to take a shower. I've got to bathe, right? I need to wash. I would only go to the doctor as a kid because I knew I was sick. I'd have a fever, sore throat, it hurt to swallow, I didn't want to eat anything, and, and I was going wanting that shot of penicillin. In those days, they would actually give you a shot of penicillin, and it was like, I would go in there feeling terrible, and by the end, I'm like, can we have Maccas on the way home? Like, I feel great. I feel really good. Um, I don't feel sick at all. But the symptoms would show up again. Maybe a year or two later, I would get strep throat again, and I'd be back at the GP. So it's like, my symptoms, they showed me my need to go to the doctor. And people, they realized, I've broken God's law. I broke it again. I was greedy. I was selfish. I'm an idolater. I'm an adulterer. And they would go back and offer sacrifices again for the nation and for themselves. And so that annual sacrifice atonement, it was a reminder of their sinfulness. It was a reminder of their need. And it showed that the blood of the sacrifice was not sufficient to purify them with lasting forgiveness. It's like permanent forgiveness, 
by sacrifice was never a promise offered by law. It was like if you sin, you must atone for that sin. And it had to keep happening again and again. The blood of animals could only provide a limited and temporary pardon. It could never cleanse the source of the sin. That word for atonement in Hebrew, it's kapar. The first use of it is in Genesis 6.14, when God directed Noah to cover the inside and outside of the ark with pitch. So it's like, cover this. They put that pitch on the outside and the inside. They covered it. And this is the same idea of covering your sins. Your sins were covered, but the source was never cleansed. It's like when a concrete wall, you've seen a nice blank concrete wall that someone's tagged with perhaps an offensive slogan or their own mark, and the council has come by and put this patch of gray paint over it. They removed it by covering it. And that gray patch, it showed that there was once something offensive there, but now it's been covered over, and it's now a new blank slate for someone else to come and cover over again. It's like the words were concealed by covering from the outside. That paint, it was a reminder that something offensive had been there before. Sacrifices served that purpose because they showed they were not able to take away the sin, that it had to be done again. Now, remember what John said of Jesus in John 1.29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Something totally different than what the law could do. I like this quote of Morris in the Enduring Word Commentary. Takeaway is used of a literal taking off, as in Peter's cutting off the ear of the high priest slave, or metaphorically as a removal of reproach. It signifies the complete removal of sin, so that is no longer a factor. That is what is needed and what the sacrifices could not provide. Jesus came to take away the sin of the world. We were cut off because of sin, and he's like, I am cutting off sin from you. So now we can be one through faith in him. That is awesome. Hebrews 10, I, I just don't think we, I don't always recognize what Jesus has done, all that he's done for us, and what that means, the implications of it, that the sin has been cut off. It's no longer a factor anymore. But our guilty conscience can keep it a factor. Hebrews 10 verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. God chose to come from heaven to the world as a man to once for all provide atonement for sin. And the writer of Hebrews quotes here from Psalm 40, 6 through 8, it's a prophecy concerning Jesus. Earlier in the book of Hebrews, the writer said, you guys are dull. I'm gonna, it's hard for me to get through to you the truth of what I'm going to say. So I'm gonna, I'm, it's going to take a little while, and I'm gonna, he, refer, he references a lot of scriptures to say, this is the reality of what Jesus has done, believing Hebrew. 
This is what Jesus has accomplished that the law could never do. He needed to convince them that Jesus had sanctified them once for all. And it was God's will that he would use Jesus to do it. It wasn't through the shadow, it was through the substance who is Christ. God's will was for people to walk holy, to be righteous. Burnt offerings and sin offerings didn't please him. That's like saying, uh, you know, I, I'm, I have committed adultery, so my wife will be pleased if I give her a gift. No, she would prefer me not to commit adultery, right? He, he, she wants me to be faithful. God wants his people to be faithful, not to just give him sacrifices when they failed him, when they have broken his laws. He's like, I want people to be righteous. I want people to be apart from sin, not just to try to make up for sin, to try to offer a sacrifice as if that's pleasing to me. Pleasing to me is walking in line with me, walking in a holy manner, in a way that pleases. That's what pleases me, not that you offer sacrifices, but that you love me, that you believe me, that you obey me. That's what God, that's what pleases him. And it pleased him to take away the first covenant so that he could establish the second which was a better covenant based on better promises. The Old Testament believers, they knew it was God's will for them to keep the commandments delivered to Moses. And since Jesus came, it was God's will for them to follow Christ in faith instead. Paul explained this. Why don't you turn there to Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul writes, and you being dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. The children of Israel had received the law, not one of them followed it perfectly. It went for priest, prophet, king. They all failed to keep it. You remember what King Amaziah did after he defeated the Edomites? In 2 Chronicles 25, 14, and 15, God gave him the victory, and this is what he did. Now, it was so after Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomites that he brought the gods of the people of Seir, set them up to be his gods, and bowed down before them and burned incense to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Amaziah, and he sent a prophet who said to him, Why have you sought the gods of the people, which could not rescue their own people from your hand? So it's like God gives them the victory over the Edomites, and he takes their gods that were unable to save them, brings them back to Jerusalem, bows down before them, and offers incense to them. It's like, why are you doing that when they... They didn't help the Edomites, and it was God that gave you the victory. Shouldn't you honor and praise him? Shouldn't you worship him? Similar to how Amaziah bowed before those idols that could not save the Edomites, the Hebrews continued to bow before the, new, the old covenant of law, which could never take away their sins. 
they kept bringing animal sacrifices to the temple, which continued under a covenant that God had superseded with the new covenant according to God's will. God's will was for sinners to be sanctified, for the sins not just to be covered, but to be taken away through faith in Christ. Matthew Henry said this, Under the gospel, the atonement is perfect. The sinner, once pardoned, is ever pardoned as to his state and only needs to renew his repentance and faith. I imagine people bringing their sacrifices and offerings with the desire to please God. They knew that they were sinners. So they would bring their offerings wanting to please Him. But if they truly wanted to please God, they weren't to come to Him with the blood of animals, but through the blood of Jesus Christ, through faith in Him that cleansed their souls and their consciences of all guilt. They were to come joyfully, not to seek to be forgiven, but because they were forgiven by what Jesus accomplished. Because that law had been nailed to the cross. That's not supposed to be resurrected. It's gone for salvation, for righteousness. The law is good because it shows us our sin, but it was never a way that could cleanse a person of their guilt before God. They weren't to come bringing their offerings to find favor with God, but to rejoice they have found favor with God because he had sent Jesus to be their savior, because he sacrificed himself for them to redeem them. God's people needed to trust him and believe that he had truly established a new covenant. Wouldn't it drive a gridiron coach mad for his players to mash the pregame plan together and the halftime adjustment with the desire to please the coach? That would be silly. He's like, guys, that was a pregame plan. That plan's out the window because we have a new plan. This is our adjustment. This is how we're going to win. And if we want to be born again, if we want to know God, it's through Christ. It's not through sacrifices or trying to make up for the things we've done wrong. God wasn't like a coach who adjusted his plan because he was caught off guard by the tactics of the opposition. God intentionally gave the law as a shadow of what was to come. He knew what his plan was. He knew how he was going to bring it to pass by his grace. And when the light of the world comes, what happens to the shadow? It's gone. There is what shadow? The light of the world is here. The specter of sin, it's gone forever. The guilt, gone. Because Jesus has taken away our sin once for all. Believe it. That's the truth. Hebrews 10, verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which could never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. The temple was a place full of activity. There was the offering of the incense, the trimming of the wicks of the, the lamps and the filling with oil, the, uh, the bread, the fresh bread that would be put on the table of showbread and removed. 
They ministered daily, and they offered the same sacrifices day after day, year after year, which could never take away sins, could never take them away. Jesus did something totally different when he offered one sacrifices, one sacrifice for sins forever. And he is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It's an eternal priesthood. Now, this sitting at the right hand of the Father, that's mentioned in Psalm 110, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus, the Messiah, was David's Lord. He was obedient to go to the cross and sit down at the right hand of the Father, having secured eternal redemption. The reality is, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And this is a reality that we must believe and understand. And this changes the way we live and why we do the things we do. Remember when Zacchaeus rejoiced to invite or to accept Jesus into his home and to receive him into his life by faith? The first thing he did, in Luke 19.8, it says, Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, look, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Now, do you know what the law requires concerning restoration after thievery? Well, it says in Leviticus 6 that a thief needed to restore the principal plus a fifth part, so that's 20%. So if you stole something and it was of monetary value, you'd give the principal that amount plus 20%. Zacchaeus didn't just say, I'll give back a percent of what I stole. I'll give four times if I stole something from you. Restitution, that is a practical principle under law concerning our conduct with men. But how could we provide restitution before a living God for our sin? Because what's the penalty for one sin? Death. Think like death plus 20%. Like your life plus 20. And every sin, compounding. And you know how compounding interest works. That's, that is a price that you could never pay. So to think that we could, under the new covenant, have, be able to provide restitution to God for what we've done wrong, it's impossible. The offering of Jesus has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Christian, do you believe that you are perfected forever because of what Jesus has done for you? Because he's once for all offered himself to take away all your sin. That happened a long time ago, but it's still present. It's still future. Like all of your sin. Everything that would keep you from a relationship with God, that is gone because he has taken it away. Colossians 2, 9 and 10, it says of Christ, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Now the writer of Hebrews quotes here from Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, and he had also said this earlier in Hebrews chapter 8 concerning the new covenant that would make the old one vanish away. And he talked about this covenant he would someday make 
It says, this is the covenant I will make. I will put the law, my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And the book of Hebrews is saying, all that God said, I will do this, I will do that, it's happened. It's happened through Jesus. The things that he promised to do, the covenant that he had said, I am going to establish, it has been established. It's not sometime in the future. It's now. And the Hebrews needed to get that because they didn't. It is done. Where there is remission for sin, there is no longer an offering for sin. That word remission, it means freedom, pardon, deliverance, forgiveness, liberty. So since your sins have been taken away, you are free of your sin and you don't need to give place to a guilty conscience to try to make up for what you've done wrong. As if you could be, that's how you're going to be restored is by having to do something. When there's no sacrifice to be given because Jesus did it all for you. It's like you were a prisoner awaiting death and someone actually died in your place. They didn't just pay for you to get, they didn't just post bail for you. They died for you. Jesus died for you and now he's alive. And so we get to thank him. We get to live for him. We get to be with him and he and us because what he's done once and for all. Having been born again, our new life, it's not to be lived looking back with regret on our sin, but with joyful obedience because Jesus has cleansed us and saved us to be with him forever. The danger for the Hebrews, it may be a little different from us. We're all the same as far as being people, but they had the chance for divided loyalty because they had been raised under the law. They felt obligated to keep the law, and it was very much ingrained in their culture, in their society. It was kind of like they were to leave the law as far as the reason why and cleave to Christ. Just like when you're married, you're to leave your father and mother and to cleave to your wife. Um, there's now a new relationship that supersedes the, the existing ones. It's like the Jews were still looking to the law for affirmation. They were looking to the law to provide them for something that it was only found in Christ. Not in the law, not by trying to make up or to provide an offering for sin. Jesus took away the sin. And so they were to give their lives as an offering to him, to thank him. Since the Jews entered into a new covenant with Christ, they were free, they were free to keep observing the law, but they needed to understand that their righteousness, their forgiveness, and their salvation, it was all by God's grace. It wasn't because they offered a sacrifice. It was because Jesus was their sacrifice. So it wasn't a prohibition from keeping law, but to realize why they kept the law. They kept it because they were forgiven already, because Jesus had saved them. They were reconciled to God. So their whole intent of going up to the feast days, that was to change. Totally different reason. Can you imagine the difference of hoping to be forgiven and knowing that you're forgiven when you're going up to that feast day in celebration? Totally different. Amazing. Now, as Gentiles, we were, most of us, not raised under the law. Our issue will be cleaving to sin, cleaving to ourselves, cleaving to whatever 
uh, environment we were raised up in to think is good and right. Whether it's legalism, whether it's uh, immoral excess or pride, we need to learn to submit to Christ and to one another. Now, the Jews were raised in submission to the law. They understood that authority. But we as Gentiles, we may not have had that upbringing, that structure in our lives. We need to learn to walk by faith in God and not by sight, to learn to take captive those thoughts that are in disobedience to Christ, to learn to take captive that guilty conscience, to say, I am not going to entertain you any longer because of what Jesus has done for me. To learn to keep our bodies in holiness and purity. God's word and the body of Christ. We, we tend to be more independent. They were very dependent on their synagogue meetings and the readings and the family structure. We need to be in fellowship with other believers so that we are in alignment with the head because the body is one body, many members. And it's only through Christ we can abide by faith. It's like we've been married to Christ as members of his body. We've been divorced from sin and a guilty conscience. And a guilty conscience is a cruel mistress that we must banish. Say, no, you have no place in my life anymore because I am Christ. I am Christ's. He is mine. He has purchased me. Continuing in Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." Jesus has made a new and living way for us to boldly come before God like never before. The priests and people could never come boldly before God. There was all this preparation required and restrictions and regulations. They could not come as they were. They had to be, the, the, the people who brought the sacrifices, they couldn't even go into the temple. They would stay outside while the priest went in, and he could only go in when he's wearing the right garments and for atonement on the day of atonement with the blood of the sacrifice on him, the anointing oil, the robes. He had to be sanctified to approach God because his life hung in the balance. The water of separation, the blood of animals, the anointing oil, it covered his defilements, his uncleanness. And it says in Numbers 19.13, Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him. So there was this real potential that they would defile the tabernacle. It's something that could be defiled. So therefore, it's not like Christ who cannot be defiled by anything because he's pure and holy and righteous. Now, if you know you have COVID, would you be bold to greet someone at the door? You're shaking hands, hugging with people, say, oh, I've just had a drink. Try this. It's really good. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do that, right? You would not be bold. You'd be like, stay away. You'd be like a leper of the old days, like, uh, you know, unclean. Don't come into this house. Put a, I, uh, there's actually a sign uh, somewhere on my street where it's like, there's all these laminated signs on the door. This is like, you don't come in unless you're wearing a mask and... This is this warning, I'm like, oh, I wonder if 
there's a little sickness in that house or if they just have a weak immune. I have not knocked on the door to see. Right? I have not been that bold to say, hey, what's with all the signage in front of your house? Are you, is there COVID in your house? Lepers under the law, they were commanded to keep their distance to let people know, I don't want to contaminate you. The priest is like, I don't want to contaminate this tabernacle because then I'm cut off from God's people. Well, you know what Jesus did? He cut off our sin. So now we can come boldly before him. We can speak with him because we've been cleansed. We have access to God that the high priest never had through Jesus, our high priest, who died for us. If you want to turn there, Acts 8.22. There was a revival that was sparked in Samaria. There was a man named Simon. He believed in Christ. He was baptized. He was previously a sorcerer. Peter came and he saw that when he laid hands on them, people received the Holy Spirit and he, he offered him money. He says, wow, I'd like to have this power that if I lay hands on people, they'll have the Holy Spirit too. Peter rebuked him whose heart was not right before God. And this is what he said in Acts 8, 22. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. Now Simon, he's a baptized, believing Christian. He did not have boldness to think that God would hear his prayer. He says, Peter, you're a man of God. Pray for me. And I think Christians can be that way. We don't believe that God will listen to us because we're sinners. We justify having a guilty conscience because we know we are guilty. And so we think the prayer of a pastor or an elder or somebody is going to have more pull with God than our prayer. Because we do not believe that our sins have been taken away. We don't believe that we can approach God in faith and he will hear and answer us because he loves us, because he's redeemed us. Place your trust in Jesus Christ. You come before him boldly into his presence yourself because of what Jesus has done. Not because you're worthy, not because of your role, or your, your place in the body of Christ, because of Jesus, you can come boldly and pray. Even if you're poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity, he will hear the prayers of those who cry out to him in faith. He will respond with cleansing. He will respond with his power. The church is not lame because it lacks members, but because members fail to trust and obey the gospel. This is the gospel, that Jesus has come and he's made a new and living way for us to be cleansed of our sin, that we can approach boldly into his throne room, that God will hear our prayers. And our salvation, it does not hinge upon our feelings or performance, but our hope in Christ who's faithful and who has promised. Think of the people that were like the, the priest is like, all right, I'm confident to go to the temple because I have washed, I've done my checklist, I've washed, I've been anointed, I've got the right robes on, got the crown on my head, I've got that big, you know, uh, belt wrapped around my waist. I've said all the right things, I've done all the right things so I can come. 
because I'm in obedience to the law. Our hope is in Christ who has promised. He has promised, and he is faithful to perform. If he could be confident to trembling walk into the holy of holies with the blood of an animal, how much more confident can we be in the blood of Jesus that was shed on Calvary for our sins? You believe the gospel is true. Do you obey the gospel? Do you draw back from God because you realize your unworthiness in your sin? Or do you come boldly in repentance knowing that he has taken your sin away from you? Romans 10, 16, 17, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Praise the Lord for the scriptures. It shows us our need to repent, our need to trust him. He gives us a a new heart and a good conscience which draws near to him in faith. We're going to finish with this passage here in Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I like that the writer is not like a coach. He's like saying, you need to do this and you need to do that. He says, let us do this. Let us draw near. Let us hold forth the confession of our faith without wavering. Let us consider one another. So we come to God considering our great high priest, all he has done, and to consider one another. For what aim? To provoke or stir up love and good works. So our consideration isn't what others could or should be doing for us. It's what Jesus has done for us and how we can show his love to one another. The church is not an organization. It's really an organism with Christ as our head. It's a living body where the body is caring for all members. I think in the wake of COVID restrictions, this is a a timely admonition and exhortation. Knowing that we're connected to Christ and to one another, it should prompt us to assemble with one another, whether it's in the the big assembly, and this word uh, that's used here, uh, episynagoge, which is complete collection. It's like everybody together, small groups, one-to-one, Christians meeting with Christians, uh, encouraging, loving one another. That's what we're called to do. And he says, don't fall short in that area. Some of the Hebrews were falling behind in that area. They weren't gathering together. And we can make that same error. It's not a new law to follow or else that you have to go to church, you have to go to your small group, but it's God's revealed will. And it's for our spiritual fruitfulness and for our health. And we don't always heed the admonitions of our doctors, do we? like, this is for your health. You need to change your diet. Well, he's saying, guys, don't for, forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are doing. And know that online stuff, why it can be convenient. It's not convenient to observe one another, to, to think that you have little to contribute. We shouldn't be coming to church saying, well, what can I get out of this? I need to go to church because I feel a need. I need something. I need a breakthrough. Or is it because you rejoice to share God's love that he's put within you. You want to contribute to the body of Christ through simply being there in faith 
and he'll open up those doors of opportunity. And if we think these exhortations of Scripture is not relevant to us, well, we're in danger of neglecting God's calling and good purposes that he has redeemed for himself. We are already complete in Christ. We come here because he has taken our sins away. So under the old covenant, they were required by law to go to the temple to offer sacrifices that could never take away sins. Now by grace, we're exhorted to gather as the body of Christ. The reason why we gather has changed. The Jews gathered to be forgiven. We gather because we are forgiven. Jesus has taken all our sins away. We're called to love one another, to exhort one another as we see the day approaching, which is not a day of terror when we speak of God's judgment, because for us it will be salvation, because we are on God's side. He is on ours, having purchased us with the blood of Jesus. The Hebrew believers, they would soon face the judgment of Rome. The the shadow of temple worship would go up in smoke when the Romans destroyed the temple mount. Jesus has brought in a new and living way for us to know God, for us to have fellowship with him and one another, having taken away our sin. And he's cut off our sin, so let's cut off any excuses that keep us from gathering in his name. By one offering, Jesus has perfected forever them that are sanctified. So we offer ourselves freely to him. Let's keep this in our minds. Let's remind our conscience of this truth. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you are so good to us to take away our sin. We are undeserving of your favor, and yet you have lavished it upon us by the grace shown through Jesus. Thank you for the forgiveness that no leper could cleanse themselves, no sinner can wash themselves, and yet you have taken our sins away through faith. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy you have saved us by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for these new lives you've given us that we can live free from guilt and condemnation because that law that condemned us has been nailed to the cross with Christ and he is risen. Thank you that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and that we can draw near to you boldly because of what you have accomplished. Oh, Lord, having our sins forgiven is awesome. I pray that you would cause us to live lives Uh, free from sin, that we would make godly, righteous choices. We would learn to keep our vessel in honor. We would uh, forsake sin. We would choose you because of the work that you've done, perfecting forever those who are sanctified. Thank you, Lord, for choosing us. Thank you for healing us. Thank you for restoring us to a relation with you and giving us a future that we never dreamed was possible. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have and the peace and contentment in you, and I pray we would not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but so much the more as we see you approaching our great and awesome God. In Jesus' name, amen.